Well, good morning. Thank you for your singing and uh, worshiping this morning. I want to welcome everyone here to Merrimack Valley Baptist Church. And whether you're a member, regular attender, or visitor, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're with us today, kind of uh, rounding up, finishing up our week of missions and focused on what God uh, is doing around the world. Uh, we started Wednesday, as Dave said, talking about this, this redemptive momentum that God initiated and now will bring to fulfillment. And it, rate, like, it kind of flamed through the book of Acts and has now come to New England and incorporated each one of you in this gospel-focused momentum of the church working together for God's, God's glory. So uh, thank you for being here to kind of continue that thought with us today. Um, I read a letter this past week. I want to just kind of share an overview with you um, about as we're getting started. Uh, the letter was written by a founding executive of, of a growing worldwide organization. Uh, the letter was written to one of his associates in the field. Um, a new location had recently been established on a small but world-renowned waterfront community and as you might would expect, with a new startup, there were issues. Um, the problem wasn't with the service that was being provided, but the specific service was, it, the service was desperately needed, like even in this, especially in this community. One of the issues that came along with servicing this kind of target community was the culture of corruption had grown to a level that was just unbelievable. The very name of this small island had come to represent corruption, deception, dishonesty, and every form of vice imaginable. This, this founding executive had sent his young associate to this community to finish setting up this new location, to organize leadership, to appoint, train leaders. You see, the executive had come to this island to initiate the startup. He, first, he saw firsthand how the empty talkers and deceivers that claimed to know all about the business as well as the boss operated. And he warns his associate in this letter. He, he, he says, they're going to tell you that they're buddies with the boss, but where they're actually working against him. These people are disobedient. They're not able in themselves to do any kind of good. So be careful. Throughout the letter, this executive instructs the associate to do everything possible to make sure that the product that they are promoting is as, 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 as attractive as possible. Every person would need to literally live out this reality. If they were going to make the kind of positive impact in, the, in their market that would create ripples that would radiate throughout the community. What this executive knew and was trying to relay to his associate was that the only way people in this area were going to receive and embrace their product was to see that other people were, were promoting it, that others were wearing it, that they were using it, that they were living it, that they were loving it, and they were making it more attractive, highlighting it every day. Never underestimate the power of seeing a product in action. Right? How many of you are willing to admit that you have at one time bought a Snuggie? Okay, no brave souls here, right? Or, or, or at least you're not brave enough to admit it, right? Or how many of you have ever ordered that box of OxyClean that that guy's yelling at you about? Or have you ever had a set of Ginsu knives, right? Can cut a tomato and the muffler off your car, 
right? Some strong knives. Attractive advertising, right? People want to see how beautifully a product is modeled and worn before they're fully attracted to it, before they're going to buy into it. So while this letter that I'm telling you about fits a lot of situations people find themselves in today, this letter that I read this last week and kind of paraphrased for you was actually written over 1,900 years ago. The executive's name is Paul, and his associate is a man named Titus. So I'd like to invite you to open your copy of God's Word this morning, whether it's a paper copy or a digital copy, to the book of Titus uh, as we spend some time walking through a text together. As you find your spot, the citizens of Crete had a reputation for deception and vice. In fact, if, if you said that someone was, someone was like Cretizing you, that meant that they were lying. This expression became popular, playing a Cretan with a Cretan meant that you'd, you'd kind of tricked a trickster. You got the better of somebody by out-deceiving them. So those are the kind of people, this is the kind of community that Titus is ministering to. And Titus had his work cut out for him in this church plant. So Paul writes to encourage Titus in the ministry as well as give him some needed advice, right, from the perspective of someone who had been through it all. So as we look through chapter 2 today, we're going to see Paul inform every believer about the importance of their involvement in their community life of the church. Paul is going to lay out the role of every member that we can all play so that the church can highlight the truth of God's word and make the biggest impact possible and progress this redemptive momentum in the community. So by the time we're finished with our study today, I, I hope that you see this truth proclaimed. And that truth is this. We are to highlight the beauty of the gospel so that all those in our church and in our community will be drawn to Christ. We are to highlight the beauty of the gospel. So let's look at chapter 2 together and realize that we will be unable to highlight the beauty of the gospel unless first we experience the reality of a, the power of a changed life. So we read, we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 10 together. Will you read along with me? But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 6, likewise, urge, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In verse 9, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray. Dear Lord and God, we are so thankful for the truth of your word 
And I pray this morning that you would give us insight into how we are to understand it, internalize it, apply it, so that at the end of the day, we will leave seeing the, the reality that your glory is worth our uh, effort, your glory is worth, worth everything. And so God, I pray you would help us to truly walk away today being able to highlight the beauty of your gospel to everyone in our church as well and as our community. So I pray you would speak through your spirit, uh, you would help us point to your word, and you would help each, each of us respond uh, appropriately uh, to it. And we thank you for the opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you were to continue reading through chapter 2, I think you'd see that the entire chapter deals with the evangelistic impact of a spiritually healthy church or congregation. So in that spiritual health of the church and its members is directly related to the power of the word. That's why in verse 1, Paul says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. In the end of chapter 1, if you were to go back and read through the, the chapter 1 going to chapter 2, Paul gives a description of negative influences that have been made by false teachers. These false teachers were tearing down the testimony of the church. So Paul speaks directly to Titus here with this command in verse 1, in, instructing him to be faithful and unashamedly and clearly teaching the word. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, the word sound expresses this idea of health or well-being. It's actually a word that gives us our word hygiene. So Paul uses that word nine times in the pastoral epistles, and five of those times are here in Titus. So when Paul uses that word, it's always in relation to personal righteousness and spiritual well-being. So in verse 1, he's talking about healthy theology that results in personal righteousness or in spiritual growth. Being people of the word should produce righteous living. So in verse one, he's talking about, about this. The principle that we should take away is this, and we could reword it a, probably a bunch of different ways, but try to put this in your mind and think about it at this point. The fruit of right doctrine is righteous living. The fruit of right doctrine is righteous living. Or you could say it this way, healthy doctrine, healthy Bible teaching and understanding should produce healthy spiritual living. One of the qualifications for leadership that Titus gives in chapter 1 is to be able to guard, protect, proclaim the truth of the word in such a way that, that sound doctrine, that biblical truth is taught and false teaching is rebuked. Now, Paul gave Timothy similar instructions, and now in Titus, he reminds us again uh, about that. Now, why do I bring that up? So when we look at the qualifications of a pastor or an elder recorded to us in 1 Timothy and then here in Titus, we need to remember something. Those lists of qualifications need to be understood as applying to everyone in the church. Now, let's read it. Let me re refresh your memory about these qualifications, and then let me clarify that statement. In Titus chapter 1, verse 6, if you're there on the same page, let's look at verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, 
He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, why do I point you to that kind of requirement? Well, here's what I mean when I say that qualification is for everyone in the church. Okay, every believer is to aspire to meet those qualifications. Every one of us should aspire to meet those qualifications. The difference is that the pastor elder must meet those qualifications. You see the difference? Every one of us should aspire to these things as believers. But if you're in a place of spiritual leadership, if you're a pastor or you're an elder, you have to meet those qualifications. So while Paul is speaking directly to Titus here in verse 1, he's speaking the truth to each one of us that each one of us needs to hear. Be careful to only teach things that are in agreement with the word of God, things that flow from sound doctrine. See, Paul is writing to help the believers on this island know how they are to live as believers in community. But the word of, word of God is where he starts and the word of God is where we need to start to. Why? Because the word of God, illuminated by the spirit of God, informs our behavior. That's our source of truth. That's our anchor. That's our benchmark. And our behavior as believers must accurately reflect the truth of the Savior that we represent. So sound or healthy doctrine should produce spiritual, spiritual healthy living, right? Spiritually healthy living. Truth of God's word should impact how we live. And that's the idea Paul wants to get across to these people on the island of Crete. He reflects that reality. Look at verse 7 and 8. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech. They can't, they can't be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Titus was to be an example to the church, and then the church was to be an example to the community. Titus and every member of his church, every, member, every form of their way of life was to be a model of healthy, godly living, healthy theology, right? Healthy biblical truth so that no one could have anything negative to say about the body of Christ on the island of Crete. If you were to read 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3, we won't go there, but if you were to read there, Peter has something very similar to say to the believers scattered throughout the empire. So whether you're serving on the island of Crete or scattered across the empire or engaging your community here in New England, believers are to live a countercultural, Bible-based spirit-fueled life that makes the biggest impact possible for the gospel in our communities. Picture this. Picture you're sitting on a pond. We've got some fishers, fishermen in here, right? Uh, or even if you're not a fisherman, pretend you're standing on the shore skipping rocks, right? Either way, imagine a smooth pond. It's calm water. Every, it's, like a, it's like glass. And then all of a sudden whether you're skipping a rock or whether some kid on the shore throws a rock into the water, what happens? It disturbs the water, right? 
But when you look carefully, that impact that's made, that impact will hit the water here. And what happens? We see ripples radiating out from that impact, right? I want you to keep that picture in your mind. When an impact is made, ripples radiate out, affecting everything around it. So if it's a big enough impact in that pond, those ripples are going to reach all the way to the, all, all the, way to the other side. If it's a small impact, the ripples are going to go a distance. So no matter what you do, when you make an impact, the ripples radiate out. That's the picture I want you to keep in your mind as we read through the rest of our text together, as we walk through verses 2 through 9 together, 2 through 10. I want you to see that these ripples of grace radiating out from an initial point of impact. That's what we do as the church, guys. We're making an initial impact in our community so that those ripples of grace continue out affecting every sphere of life around us. We're to be instructed by sound doctrine so that we can live that sound doctrine out in the church and in our communities so that God's glorified and so we can make a grace-filled gospel impact that will radiate outward into our community and to the ends of the earth. Remember, Paul is writing to Titus after he made it all the way to Rome with the gospel. Now the gospel has been launched to the ends of the earth. Now Paul is writing to Titus on the island of Crete. And that gospel is continuing to the end of the earth. And that momentum is continuing to the nations around the world. So Paul begins with the importance of the teaching of the word of God. And then he gives us this blow-by-blow blow commentary on how believers in the, in the church were to make this gospel impact throughout their communities. And that impact has to start with a powerful example. If you were to look through verses 2 through 9 again, Paul gives a list of ways in which every member of the church can serve as an example to other believers, right? as well as to people in their community. Now, we're going to look at a list of examples that can be lived out that flow from this text. But before we do, I want to point out why Paul probably chose this list of examples. See, on, on the island of Crete, Titus was dealing with, with the, the, the culture there and issues. And these are some of the issues that he was dealing with. Anger, immorality, immaturity, lack of reverence, lack of respect, slander, meanness, Substance abuse, idleness, family brokenness, dishonesty, disobedience, backtalk, theft. Those are some of the same things we deal with. These are all sins that need to be addressed and need to be removed from our lives and our church community. And each of these issues is addressed in verses 2 through 9. Many of the issues beneath the surface sometimes of our nice Christian facade have got to be dealt with. And Paul here is dealing with them in Titus. So the instructions being given may seem a bit countercultural to our world today, but keep this in mind. As believers, we're called to adhere to and live out the truths of Scripture, not the trends of our culture. Right? The truth of Scripture need to dictate how we live, not... The dance is on TikTok. 
And if we're going to make a gospel grace-filled impact in our communities and leave intentional ripples of grace, then scripture must be our guide. I know that I say that a lot, but we can never underestimate that point. Paul gives clear instructions to Titus, and he starts with the older men. In verse 2, Paul refers to the, to the older men here. Now, the word older here, uh, it means mature in years. It's the same word that Luke uses in Luke chapter 1 when he's describing Zechariah. When, when, when Zechariah is saying, I'm old and advanced in years, it's the word that means hoary-headed, which isn't a phrase we use anymore. Um, but it, it's somebody probably in their 70s. Um, and, 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 then it, and then Paul uses it again in the letter to Philemon, um, where he calls himself an old man. So just to kind of give you an idea of who he's talking to, uh, an older man who's mature, who has experience, is to live his life in these ways. And we're going to start kind of a master list here, uh, if you're taking notes. Sober-minded, that means clear-headed, right? Sober in thought, uh, dignified, worthy of respect. Um, that means living in a way that's worthy of respect. Um, self-controlled, he curbs his desire and impulses. I think I have this list for you. Um, sound in faith, uh, love, steadfastness, right? Sound in faith, right? He describes his personal relationship with God. Love describes his relationship with others. Uh, steadfastness, perseverance means describes his steadfastness for the sake of his relationships, right? The, especially in the face of opposition. He's, he's perseveres. He's steadfast. So these qualities you see here, um, in the ways of life that are given are so that older men can live out what a life dedicated to sound doctrine looks like, right? You're living out, what is, what is an older man? How does an older man live in a way that lives out sound doctrine? Well, here are some ways. This is how older men can have an impact in the church and in their communities as they make ripples, as you make ripples that will radiate out to those around you. So keep that in mind. We're gonna add to that list here in a minute. In verse 3 through 5, Paul refers to older women. Now, these are mature women, and no, I'm not going to say anything about their age. <laughs> Paul says their older women are likewise to be reverent in behavior. Uh, the word likewise points you back to that list. Likewise, meaning everything I've already said about the men, we're, we're adding to the list. It's a master list. Everything that was said about the older men transfers to the older women and will continue to transfer down. So the word reverent generally gives us the idea of honoring God, but that word specifically describes the, the conduct of a priestess. So I think Paul's heart here is that every, each and every mature Christian woman is to demonstrate the holiness of a heart that is near to God. That's going to be a mark of her living out sound doctrine. Right doctrine, right? Biblical truth produces holy living that's driven by a desire to have a heart that's near to God. And again, because of what's going on in the culture around them, Paul gives these additional qualities to the older women. Not slanderers, right? Not malicious gossips. It relates to the lack of the control of the tongue. Uh, not slaves to much wine talking about drunkenness, 
relates to the lack of self-control. See, these out-of-control behaviors were commonly associated with certain women in, in, on the island of Crete and in the Greco-Roman society. Anyone who exhibited these kinds of behaviors while calling themselves a Christian was damaging the credibility of the life-changing power of the gospel. So Paul goes on to share in verses 3 and 4 that these older, mature women were to be teachers of what is good and trainers of younger women. So the ripple effect of, of godliness were to be obvious in the church. Good teaching and godly living were to lead to more, what? Good teaching and godly living. The natural leaders of the church, the older men and the older women, were to live out this healthy doctrine, right? This, this Bible truth through their example of godliness, their self-control, and to instruct, guide, and mentor the younger generations. That there's this, this is a discipleship pathway here uh, laid out for us in Titus chapter 2. So next in verses 4 and 5, Paul refers to the younger women. And there is more here in this whole passage than we'll, we can unpack today. So I do think that it's interesting, though, that it seems like Paul is establishing, uh, establishing a pattern here that did break all social barriers and would actually raise the status of women on the island of Crete. Titus was to teach these older women to learn godly conduct, and then he communicates a specific responsibility that the women were to take on that would actually restrict his own ministry. The older women were to teach the younger women. Now, there's a lot of wisdom here that's actually a protection. Hey, younger women were to, be, were to perceive their husbands to be the primary spiritual instructor. You can look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 35, where Paul relays that same idea to the Corinthian church. This would establish a pattern of instruction in the church that would also not lead to sexual temptation. If older women are teaching younger women, then that helps us stay away from a lot of the controversy people in church find themselves in. And then the good things that older women were to teach the younger women seemed to be related primarily to marital and family, family life. But of course, there's going to be a spiritual uh, matters as well. But when we look at verse 4 and 5, we see that the older women were to model and teach godliness. Then they were to then they will be able to teach the younger women to love their husbands and their children. The list goes on, be self-controlled, pure. Uh, it says busy at home to be kind and to be subject or submissive to their husbands. Now remember, each one of these qualities Paul is giving to help correct an unbiblical cultural norm on the island of Crete that was common in the community that had crept into the church. So when Paul says, love their husbands and children, this was because at that time there was a formal arranged marriage that was very prominent. So a woman who truly and deeply loved her husband would stand out as a very positive representative for the gospel in their community. Now, according to Paul, the false teachers in Crete were ruining whole households. You read that in chapter 1. So while some of these instructions might be obvious, there was a need that they be given attention in the church. And these countercultural instructions for younger women include, if we're going to add to our list here again, self-control, pure, working at home, and submissives to their own husbands. 
So a summary of Paul's point, interpreted and applied to our modern day audience, is that young women who make things like career status, financial advantage, sexual satisfaction, again, none of these are bad things, right? These all can be good things. But someone who puts those things as a higher priority in their life than and even put as a, a higher priority so much at the, so that their family suffers as a result of that is in serious danger, I think, of violating Scripture. And it shows a sign of a heart that's not sensitive to God's Spirit. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the Bible advocates that ladies shouldn't work. That's not, that's not in the text here. What is in the text is putting... Uh, putting these other cultural norms as a higher priority than what God's word teaches us, okay? Make sure we understand that. As a wife loves her husband and children, she uses her gifts and talents to support spiritual maturity of her household. Look at, look at the end of verse 8. It says, she cultivates an atmosphere in her home and in her community so that those who may come to revile or condemn her, condemn her would not would have nothing evil to say about her. As the enemies of Christ, as the opponents of the church, and as genuine faith seekers in our communities, as they see gracious, gospel-driven ripples made by our lives that radiate out, as they see these ripples that are, that are created by sound teaching and what that looks like, the word of God gains credibility in our community. Now, ladies, I'm going to stop picking on you in just a minute. But there's a lot about you in this passage. And we didn't dig into even a part of it. There's a wonderful message for you here in this passage. God knows the impact that a wife and a mother can have on the family and on the community. I think that's why Paul seems to focus on younger women so much here that younger women have a huge responsibility of modeling the truth that biblical truth leads to righteous living. We all have that responsibility. So now in verse 6, Paul moves on to the younger men. All right, we're going to equally offend everyone here today, so don't worry. <laughs> in verse 6, Paul speaks to younger men. Paul, Paul seems to somewhat bookend some of his instructions by, by giving... Um, them in this order, Titus, older men, older women, younger women, and then now younger men. So in verse 6, he says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. So Titus is to instruct the younger men by word and by example, just like the older women were to instruct the younger. The influence of Titus's life was to spread among the less mature men. Paul tells Titus this, that the younger men are to be encouraged or urged, urged excuse me, and to be self-controlled. Now, why doesn't Paul have this long list that he gives the younger men? Well, don't overlook that word likewise. Do you see that? Likewise, at the beginning of verse 6, means that, hey, everything that I've given so far also applies to younger men. So, can we put that whole list up? I think it's in one of the slides. We'll see that the whole list of ways of living here, Paul passes on to the younger men as well. 
The word urge that Paul uses in verse 6 is a command. Titus is to command the younger men to take steps necessary so that they will be disciplined enough to grow into the godly older men. Right? These younger men would one day have to be the older men listed in verse 2. So Paul speaks to the younger men. Okay, all of these, all of these ways of living are passed down to everyone. Lastly, in verse 9, Paul speaks to the slaves. Now, Paul addresses a specific group of people here that were very near to Paul's heart that each one of us can identify with. The slaves, these were the normal, everyday workforce. In our modern context, we would say these are the employees. Let's keep in mind that all of these groups that Paul is instructing, that he's addressing, are all believers, okay? They're all people who have joined the local church at Crete, uh, and would profess the name of Christ. So Paul addresses these slaves. In your text, you might see bondservant. Another translation might read slaves. Probably more accurate translation is slaves. Uh, th- these are the workforce in the community. Look at verse 9. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Now, it's interesting to me that Paul is concluding his thoughts in this section with a group of people that he identifies with by name as the working class people, the slaves. Now, why do I say Paul identifies with them? Well, remember, if you were to read through the book of Titus, if you look at verse 1, that's exactly what Paul calls himself. Verse 1, Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you look back at the, the word in my English translation says servant, but it's the word doulos, which is slave, which is reused over and over in the New Testament, and it means slave. It doesn't mean servant. There's another word for servant. Um, but this idea of being a slave. A slave to us has very negative connotations, and, and it's earned that right. right? It's earned that, that negative reputation. Um, A slave in the Greek world, though, could include someone living in miserable conditions, but it could also include those that were in an apprenticeship, an indentured relationship, an indentured servant, domestic workers, even some people that held high government office. Additionally, the context of this passage shows us that there were slaves that were members of the church, members of the religious community alongside freedmen. So Paul tells us to teach these believing church members who happen to be slaves to be submissive. Again, that word submissive is the same word that was used for women. It's a military term that means to kind of fall in line under, right, for the purpose of achieving achieving a goal to help to succeed. But what instructions does he give the slaves here, the, the employees, the workers? This submissive attitude would be illustrated by, he says, being well-pleasing, not argumentative, not stealing, showing all good faith, right? Why? So that they would be trusted, so that they would be seen as trustworthy. What's the point of all this instruction, of all this behavior? It's to help us see that right biblical teaching should produce righteous living. Living out the gospel should attract people to it. Everything these Christians, these slaves were to be done was to be done so that there would be a gospel-driven impact made in their community. 
And these slaves, I think, have the best opportunity to model that over anyone. Imagine that God had ordained it so that this person was a slave or a servant in the household of someone who has not responded in faith to Christ. And now that slave or that servant or that employee has an opportunity to model how beautifully the gospel could transform a person for God's glory. Highlighting the beauty of the gospel so that all those people in the church and in our communities will be drawn to Christ. As each group would live out their truth, the truth of God's word, those ripples are going out. Before we finish, let me focus you on not just the power of an example, but the hope that we're to highlight. Look at verse 10. And let me point you to what I'm going to call a beautiful cosmetic. Okay? Look at verse 10. So that, the end of verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So, so that, right? At the very end, we understand that means like everything that preceded it has been building up so that this can take place. And I've been waiting like all week to get to this half of the verse because I think it is so cool. The word that's translated adorn in this text is, our, is the word, we get our word cosmetics. The word means to decorate or to highlight. Okay, now men, I'm going to give you a softball here that if you miss it, I can't even promise that you'll eat lunch today. All right? Here, here's the softball. What do cosmetics do? When your wife wears cosmetics, what, what do they do for her? You're all scared to death to answer, right? Well, if you say that those cosmetics make your wife beautiful, you'd be wrong, and you'd probably not eat for the rest of the week, okay? She won't even drive you home. Because that's not what cosmetics do. Cosmetics do not make anyone beautiful. Cosmetics are engineered to enhance the beauty of a woman that's already there. Hey, guys, our wives are already beautiful. The makeup they wear just enhances their beauty. Now is when all God's men say, okay, some of you need a lot of marriage help, I think. So next week we'll be starting our marriage conference, so you can start signing up now. But the cosmetic enhances beauty that's already there. And that's the idea here in verse 10. The gospel is already beautiful. There is nothing that you can add to the gospel to make it more beautiful. What we are to do, every member of this local church, every member of this local church, older men, older women, younger women, older, uh, younger men, were to live our life in such a way that we're highlighting the beauty of the gospel that already exists. How many of you have ever bought a diamond? All right, guys, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redeem you here. Well, I don't know. I can't do that. Um, how many, some of you, it's just too far gone. Uh, how many of you have ever bought a diamond? Okay, let's assume that most of you have. Um, when you go to the, to the jewelry store to buy a diamond, you're like, okay, I, I want that one. I want that ring right there. You know, um, what do they do? Do they pick the ring up and just kind of like lay it on the counter 
Or do they pick it up and just kind of like chunk it on the floor? Or do they get like a cardboard box and lay it in? Like what do they do? They unroll a black piece of velvet and then they lay the diamond ring on it. Okay? I mean, unless you're buying it like on the street in New York where they're pulling it out of their pocket, they should, they're probably going to lay out this black fabric. Why do they do that? To highlight the beauty of the diamond. Right? So that's, again, that's the same way. They're trying to highlight its beauty so that you'll pay the sticker price. <laughs> uh, they want you to be over, so overwhelmed by the beauty of that diamond that you'll pay any cost, any cost to get it so that you can give it to your bride. Okay, just like guys, you're still so overwhelmed by the beauty of your bride that you'd be happy to buy her another diamond. Okay, ladies, I tried. If it works, praise the Lord. If not, then... We'll still have to praise God for it. But <laughs> our lives as believers are to serve in that same way. A grace-filled cosmetic, like, like a setting on your ring that holds that diamond up and elevates it so that the beauty of that diamond can, can be highlighted, the perfect clarity of that. Just That's what we're to do as believers. We're to hold up the beauty of the gospel so that everyone who sees our lives will see the clarity of the gospel and be attracted to it. Do you know why? Because God is worthy of it. And because your boss needs a savior. And your neighbor needs a savior. And the kid down the street from you needs a savior. That man or woman that you sit next to in that cubicle every day needs a savior. Everyone you come in contact is with is going to live somewhere forever. And there are only two options, right? Heaven or hell. Either being in the glorious presence of God forever or being in a place completely separated from God and everyone else forever. And you can't get into heaven without being in the presence of God you know, and be in the presence of God without the gospel. And that gospel is this. You know, maybe, I think most of us are members or regular tenders, but maybe you're here today and visiting and you have not yet placed your faith in Christ. Well, that clarity of the gospel is this, that Jesus lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty that I deserve, that you deserve. He died on the cross. He was buried he rose from the grave on the third day, proving that he was exactly who he said he was. And then he ascended to heaven, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, praying for you and for me. That's it. That's the clarity of the gospel. And that is what we can never get wrong. We can never let anything replace it. And we can never let anything water it down. So as believers, in all we do we are to highlight the beauty of the gospel so that all those in our church and in our community will be drawn to Christ. My question for you this morning is what kind of impact do you make in this church and in your community? We, we all make ripples. The question is what kind of ripples are you making? Are you making ripples of anger immorality, immaturity, slander, meanness, substance abuse, idleness, family brokenness, back talk, theft? 
disobedience? I hope not. With each impact, a chain reaction starts. The question we need to reflect on and answer are, do the impacts I make every day cause other people to be pointed to Jesus? Does a concern for healthy Bible truths affect your actions and your decisions? I hope that all of us are growing to the place where we can say, biblical truth produces righteousness in my life. If it doesn't, I want it to. In order for your church and mine to have a truly effective impact for Christ, every member here has to do their role. You have to do your job. You have to live out what God has called you to do. Highlight the beauty of the gospel. Now, what kind of impact are you having personally? So we're going to do this corporately and personally here. If you were to pass away, if you were to move away, would anyone in this community, would anyone in this community, in, the, in your circle of influence, miss the gospel impact you, you're having on their life? If you were to not be here tomorrow, would people notice that, hey, there's a gospel impact or influence that's not here anymore? I'll ask the same question corporately. If Merrimack Valley Baptist Church were to disappear tomorrow, would, would anyone in this community notice? Would anyone in this community miss the impact you're having on their lives? Highlighting the beauty of the gospel so that everyone in our church and in our community is drawn to Christ. That's what we're to do, guys. Make a gospel impact here that's going to radiate out to Uganda, to Papua New Guinea, and around the world. But guys, it has to start here. So I just want to challenge you with that thought today. How are you going to respond to this truth? Let me give you some examples of how you could respond, and then we'll close in prayer. If, if you're listening today and you have never yet placed your faith in Christ, then the only response I'll share with you is to believe, is to believe the gospel. For, for those of us who are believers here today, just give you several options of ways that you could respond. First, share the gospel. Right? Share those with closest to you. Thursday night, I believe I asked you, who, who's your one? Who's that one person that you're going to share the gospel with this year? Live out your faith. In word and deed, highlight the beauty of the gospel. Live it out. Share the gospel. Live out your faith. Serve. Right? Serve those in your church and in your community. Highlight the beauty. And lastly, give generously. Give to maintain and increase the momentum that the local church is making here to impact locally, regionally, globally. Right? The, the, the effectiveness of, of your ripples there kind of going out, helping the local church here gain momentum around the world, but it has to start here. 
Highlight the beauty of the gospel, guys. The, beauty, the gospel is too beautiful to like keep to ourselves, And God's glory is too worthy. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord and God, again, we just thank you for the opportunity to share your word today. And I do ask that, that I would respond uh, in a way that's pleasing to you. I pray that each one of us would respond by engaging in what you've called us to and uh, living out that, that faith as an example to our community. This is what biblical truth looks like in action. And help us to live it in a way that truly highlights and clarifies the gospel. God, I pray that no one we interact with would ever have a question about not knowing what the gospel is or not seeing it lived in our life. So God, help each one of us to respond to your word this morning and to engage in what you're calling the church to do, each one of us to do. Serve, go, God, give. Um, pray you would just, your spirit uh, would lead us to respond to you well this morning. And thank you for that opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen.